want to talk to a guy who started a Ron DeSantis pack? Why not? Let's have some fun. John Thomas, he's a Republican political strategist and the founder of Ron to the Rescue. John, welcome. Good to be with you. All right. Uh, so why uh, Ron DeSantis? What, what makes you so jazzed about him as opposed to Greg Abbott or Christy Nome or anyone else? I mean, it's a great question. Um, I, th I think the we have to step back and look at you know Republicans and Democrats. Look, it's fun to have rallies. Uh, it's fun to organize our supporters. But at the end of the day, campaigns are about winning. That's fundamentally it. Because if your team doesn't win, they can't enact their agenda. And the Republicans for the last now three cycles at the federal level have been losing. Uh, what we expected a red wave was a red mist at best in November. And look, I think a lot of that is falls at the feet of President Trump. He, for whatever reason, he has not been able to get our team across the finish line. And, and then juxtaposed to in November, there was a red tsunami in the state of Florida. Governor DeSantis not only dominated statewide, but he turned a classic swing state into a red state. And so we think that Ron DeSantis is the future of the Republican Party. He should be the Republican nominee and he's best to take back the White House in 2024. So John, you changed your mind a couple of times. For a little while, you thought, maybe not do this pack. And then after the midterms, you brought it back. So what made you yeah. change your mind? Oh, well, it's a great question. You know, Myself and a bunch of DeSantis supporters have for some time been thinking that perhaps Governor DeSantis would be the best equipped to be the Republican nominee. But when Donald Trump was raided or the raids at Mar-a-Lago occurred, something switched in the Republican electorate at that moment in time, which is it turned former President Trump into a victim. And the Republican primary electorate was looking at him as a victim and rallying to his defense. And I'm not just talking about the ride or die MAGA people. I'm talking about the Mitch McConnells, the Kevin McCarthy's, the Lindsey Graham's. The establishment of the Republican Party as well as the grassroots were standing tall behind Donald Trump because they thought he was treated unfairly. And it was at that moment I thought, you know what? Even if Governor DeSantis might be the future, now might not be the time. With one exception, and I said this at the time, which is if Donald Trump's primary picks in the midterm cycle mostly lost. And not only did that happen, but Governor DeSantis on the flip side had an absolute total victory in Florida. And so it was at that point that I thought, you know what? It's back on. DeSantis is the future. And you know what? I think I was right because public polling has actually been pretty consistent since the midterms, which is Ron DeSantis is either leading or tied in almost every head-to-head -head matchup with Donald Trump. I think the Republican electorate has shifted. Not to say that they don't like Trump, they just want him to shift from a party leader to a party elder. Yeah, I think the polling is a lot more mixed than that. But I'm curious, when you said you felt something switch when Mar-a-Lago was raided, other than the public figures talking about it, how could you tell? Well, I mean, this is what I do for a living. I've I've worked in almost 49 states at this point. So that you know, we run. I'm a political strategist by trade. We run dozens of candidates each cycle. So we have our tentacles all over the United States. And so, just in the course of doing our work for our clients, we were noticing 
that people were feeling sympathetic for the president, that perhaps the Department of Justice was slightly heavy handed. And one way you can get people to rally to your side is when your team thinks you were unfairly treated. And that was largely the sentiment. And then of course, we saw that play out in more right wing media as well, that people were rallying behind Trump's offense. And then I even saw some internal polls about 2024 stack ups and Trump's numbers popped in his favorability. So that that was how I came to that conclusion. It, it does happen often. I, I ran for Congress once and when the New York Times attacked me unfair, unfairly, uh, we raised $200,000 that day and in a congressional run that was a huge amount in one day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that leads me to ask the question, what do you think happens if Trump is indicted? Oh, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, the, I would ask myself, which is does this turn him into the victim again? and essentially box out any challengers. I'm not certain. I think it depends on what he's indicted for. You know, So we'll have to look at that as whether or not the indictment is perceived to be fair or unfair. Oh, I think well, we'll largely on, dictate that, that. Yeah, but that's okay. So look, I'm. this is informational, it's interesting. Obviously, you and I don't agree about politics or policy, but it's an interesting <laughs> conversation about, but you're making it sound like Republican voters are rational, and that's absurd. Uh, no matter what he's indicted for, even if they had overwhelming evidence, if they had Trump on video selling nuclear secrets, every Republican would still rally to him. I mean, there's no way they would believe I think, actual I think, evidence. I mean, I think I think you're wrong there. I think you're wrong there. Trump certainly has a ride or die base. The question is. How big is that base now? I think if you had asked that question in 2016, 27, 2018, you might have been right. I think the electorate has shifted. They're looking for new alternatives. And I the question is, where is Donald Trump's floor, right? Where is his base? I think it's probably 18 to 22% at this point. It used to be in the mid, mid to high 30s. Uh, and that was a pretty strong domination of the Republican Party. I don't think he has that vice-like grip on the party. So the answer I see it as. It depends. Yeah, so John, I, I, uh, what do you think well, his I was, base? I, was gonna say, I think that. I, go ahead, sorry. What do you think his uh, floor is in the Republican primary, though? Well, that's the that's the big question. Um, I, we'll we'll find out over time. Uh, some early polling I've seen in the last couple of weeks, some some internals um, we've seen from other camps has him at about twenty to twenty three percent. Kind of that's the margin of error. If that's true. I think Donald Trump will lose the Republican nomination. If his floor is in the mid mid to high 30s, look, he I think he can have a good shot at taking these winner take all states early on and essentially just get momentum and nobody can catch up. So, so that that's the big question is where is that floor and we think it's in the low 20s. John, I, I assume you're good at your job. I, I don't know the details of course, but I assume it. But I can't imagine that Trump's Floor in a Republican primary is in the twenties. That I I can't. There's no world. I've never seen a poll where he didn't hold like two thirds of Republicans super solidly, right? So you're saying he's mm-hmm. going to dip all the way into the twenties, or can that seems inconceivable? Yeah. Well, the the well. I, look, I understand history certainly was that way. But what I would say is, look, when people are asked in most public polling, it's they're they're given, do you want Trump 
would you support Trump? It's this, it's there's no credible alternative. This is where DeSantis plays such an important role. If there's no credible alternative, historically, Republicans have lined up behind this president. But look, a poll just came out of New Hampshire by, I think it was a university in New Hampshire just today that showed Governor DeSantis sitting in the high 40s and Trump sitting in the mid 30s in a head to head stack up. And that's not even including other slices of Republicans that could potentially eat into Trump's base. Look, what I'm saying is, I think voter, former Trump supporters are looking for other things other than Trump. No, and, and, and something is interesting to take away. If you go back and you look at research back from 2016, a lot of people think that it was uh, these ride or die people that would be with Donald Trump. This is his like mid 30, there's 30% of the vote that would vote for him no matter what, right? Um, didn't matter what he did, what he said, what whether or not he was electable or not. That's actually incorrect as they self-reported it. Public polling has shown that there was almost a one for one matchup of people who both approved and liked of Donald Trump. They also thought he could win a general election. That's an important thing. Now we're seeing it shift. Voters who like Donald Trump are questioning whether or not he can beat a Joe Biden or whoever the Democrats put up. And I think that's a, a critical shift from 2016 to now. Okay. Uh- I think if Ron DeSantis doesn't run when he's polling this well in the Republican primaries nationwide, he's got all of the right wing, not all, but almost all the right wing media behind him. Seems to have, in my opinion, the mainstream media behind him. He's got all the donors behind him. If he doesn't run under these circumstances, isn't he a bit of a coward? I don't know if a, a coward, I mean, there's a lot of dynamics you, you would know as a former candidate, there's a lot of dynamics that go into a decision to run. Um, I don't, so I don't think that's appropriate, but certainly he would be missing his moment. This is his time. Uh, you know, he's a sitting governor, he's coming off of uh, a very uh, popular policy decisions, both in his state and with a Republican primary electorate. You're right, he is a bit of darling of the media at this moment. And he has the most powerful word in politics with, on the, on the national stage, which is he's new, he's new, juxtaposed to Joe Biden and Donald Trump who are not new. And so voters, especially Republican primary voters, if they're questioning of like, what are we going to do differently this go around so that we can win? Well, DeSantis's newness might just be what they lock onto. So John, the reason I say coward is because I can't think of any reason he wouldn't run other than being scared that Donald Trump's gonna bully. Like, I mean, you have all the momentum in the world. I mean, if you, it's like almost handed to him on a silver platter. If you don't run, it's because you're scared of Trump, isn't it? Uh, you know, I, I've worked with candidates uh, at every level, and it's a complicated decision matrix. I'm sure that that might be one of the things. Um, I, I don't think it was, you know, look, we know from uh, DeSantis's tax returns, for instance, he's not a wealthy man at all. Perhaps his wife and his family are looking for a place that, like, hey, look, you need to provide for our kids. You know, there are all these other reasons. But look, this is his moment. If he does not run now, there is no guarantee. In fact, it's unlikely that he will be in such a solid and strong position in 2028 because he won't be a governor. COVID will be a distant memory, hopefully, at that point. And it's just, it's it's now or never. Look, that's why we launched the Super PAC because what we're doing at this point is harnessing the energy and laying the groundwork and infrastructure for the governor so that when he does decide to run, and we believe he will, that he hasn't lost any time because Trump is the only candidate right now. 
So we're gonna do all the organizing and then hand over the infrastructure to the governor so that he can hit the ground running. Look, we think he's gonna run, so we'll, we'll see if we're right. So John, I'm curious how you read the tea leaves because a lot of folks say, no, sit this one out. You don't wanna get bloodied by Trump. Uh, come back in the next one and and you'll win. I mean, I think that's a terrible idea. Uh, I think that who knows, maybe another Republican beats Trump in the primary and then you're mm-hmm. toast. You're to never to be seen again, right? So especially if they win right. the presidency. So, but do we? I haven't seen any indication from DeSantis which way he's going to go. Have you seen any indication? I'm pretty confident he's going to run. Uh, the uh, the biggest indicator is uh, just the fact that he's top of the polls right now, and that he constantly keeps himself in the national press. I mean, that's not on accident. Uh, that takes work. Uh, so it isn't. You know, you don't, especially when you're not up for re-election. You don't, uh, as they say, do you stick your head up? People are going to take shots at you unless there's a reason for him to stay relevant. And I think he wants to stay relevant, and he wants to keep putting his agenda out there because he's positioning smartly for a, a, a presidential primary. But look, he's having a moment. These don't happen very often in presidential politics. In fact, it happens almost never to most most aspiring presidential candidates. I do think that there's a lane for somebody who's not Trump, um, but it's a delicate lane and, 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 and tight rope to walk. And I think DeSantis starts out with a big brand and name ID, which is very valuable. He's a proven fundraiser in this last cycle. He raised over $200 million for his gubernatorial reelect, which means he can compete at the presidential level. Um, he's got all of the components. And I would say that people think, you know, Trump is a force to be reckoned with, and he steamrolled everybody in 2016. But I do want to remind you, in 2016, Trump was largely left alone in the primary until the very end when John Kasich ran hard against Trump because everybody thought mistakenly that Trump was beatable. So everybody in the Republican Party primary wanted to be the second position to Trump because they thought they could topple Trump. That's not going to happen this time around. Trump is going to get the front runner treatment, and that means the everybody's going to pick on pick on him at the debates. He's going to get the ad wars against him. Like this is not going to go well for him. And then compound with, if I'm right, and I think I am, I think the electorate shifted and is looking for an alternative to Trump right now. All right. Um, last thing here. By the way, I've, I would love to see Republicans attacking Trump in a debate. I would be shocked if that happened. <laughs> Uh, I look, okay. so well, let's see what happens, John. Maybe we'll have you will. back on okay. afterwards to, to, love to, if there's debates, et cetera, to see because I, I think there's they're so scared of Trump. I think they're all deathly afraid of him, and so the idea that these guys who are not known for their courage are going to take on Donald Trump in a Republican primary debate, okay, all right. I mean, I hope so. I want it. I want it, but I'd be super surprised. Anyways, but last thing I want to ask about your polling. Uh, so in the uh, Democratic primaries, people are obsessed with electability because they uh, watch mainstream media. Mainstream media tells them never vote for progressive. They're never going to win. They're never going to. You got to vote for the most conservative Democrat, and they get people to like. So I would say, you know, very very roughly, like that's eighty percent of the consideration for a Democrat in a primary. Who's going to win? The policies they love progressive policies, but they never vote for the progressives. Because Anderson Cooper's got him convinced that only the conservative Democrat can win. How is it for the Republicans? Like, 
Electability that you mentioned not, earlier. Yeah, it, it, electability is a box to check, but it's not. I, I know the dynamic you're talking about in Democratic primaries. It's nowhere near as strong as a as a prevailing force in Republican primaries. But you have to the the Republican primary electorate needs to believe you can win, but it's more important about your identity and your policies than electability. So we kind of have the reverse problem. So consequently, very often we elect people that in fact do have an electability issue. But 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 there is there there appears to be a thirst with Republican primary voters to get back to winning. And we're even seeing it in our PAC organizing. We're getting a lot of, for instance, in New Hampshire, where we're we're at an event tomorrow in New Hampshire. Trump's gonna be speaking, but it's a state GOP event. And a lot of former party leaders are coming and jumping on the DeSantis train. And these were Trump supporters. They're now leaving it. And their main reason, electability. So perhaps things are shifting in our own electorate. All right, John Thomas, Republican strategist and pollster and the founder of Ron to the Rescue. Uh, Thanks for joining us, we appreciate it. Thanks. All right, is the problem in San Francisco in regards to crime and homelessness related to uh, San Francisco being too far left or too far right? Interesting. So let's talk about it. Keith Humphreys is Astor Ting, Memorial Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. And he wrote an interesting article about it in the San Francisco Chronicle. Keith, welcome. Hey, very glad to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem. So um, you made a very uh, different, unique uh, argument, but it instantly rung true to me. So you said that it's not liberalism, but libertarianism that's the problem in San Francisco. Why? That's right. So I mean, you know, what you think of what is left wing, and that would be things like progressive taxation and generous provision of services. San Francisco does those things. It provides health care to just about everybody without concern about ability to pay. It provides lots of services to people who don't have housing. And if they if we didn't do that. Uh, the death rate, the drug problem would be much more serious. So that is not our problem. Our problem is that uh, it's a very libertarian town, very individualistic, a place where people come to be free of social constraints. That works very well for some issues. Free speech, it worked very well. The uh, LGBT rights, it worked very well. But it doesn't work very well for addiction. The idea that if we just uh, back off and let people pursue their uh, you know, pursue their freedom, good things will happen. Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't happen in addiction because it really limits human capacity to make good decisions that are, are good for ourselves and good for other people too. Okay, yeah, when I uh, read your piece and I, I was like, oh yeah, Castro District, you know, psychedelic drugs, Silicon Valley's obsessed with libertarianism. I was like, oh yeah, that is San Francisco's history. And so, and but now let's, when we talk about uh, people who are addicted to drugs that are on the street in San Francisco, for example. Um, well, then, they, do you think that the folks that are saying no, you you can't, you know, you got to leave them there, the state can't force them into addiction, etc. But I, those aren't really right wingers, aren't they? Like they're. So I wonder if the left wing activists don't realize they're being libertarian. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, no, I do. And and you know, it, the thing is, there's left and there's right, and then there's views about liberty and community. And you can be a right wing and libertarian, or left wing and libertarian. 
Um, and um, you know, and there's certainly left-wing places in this country that have a very kind of more paternalistic view about community order and things like that. I think it, you would see those as you go further east in the United States. I do think some of the folks arguing about drugs don't appreciate how close some of their rhetoric is very similar to gun rhetoric. You know, uh, people like it; uh, they want to have it. It's their individual freedom. If other people are harmed, uh, well, that's uh, not their problem. Or rhetoric around vaccine refusal. Uh, you know, I don't want to do it. It doesn't matter what happens to other people. I, I get complete autonomy in my body. Those kinds of arguments are very similar to how people who I think would think of themselves as left wing sometimes argue about you know fentanyl use in San Francisco. And I do wish they would think that through a little more fully because it is a it's not really a public health view anymore. Then it turns into a kind of individual uh, is you know rights over the well being of anybody else and. That to me is a, a a destructive point of view. Yeah, you know the, this old argument about how the spectrum is in a line; it's a circle. And so, as I saw left wing activists in L.A., San Francisco, wherever they might be, Portland, Seattle, uh, say, "No, we can't ever, uh, you know, say that the government should force people into recovery or, uh, you know, help them with their addiction, etc." I thought. Have they gone all the way around the bend and become right wingers? Because that is not really a traditional left wing um, opinion, right? Uh, or ideology. And uh, and so, yeah, but, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, I'm going to say you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it isn't traditional, and and I think it, you 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 named the right cities. It really is something that happened in the American West, you know, where people have come for a long time to get free of constraints. And I think politics out here is a bit. A bit different for that reason. And, and one thing I, I ask, I, I volunteer at an agency up in the city and I see people in very uh, serious situations as I walk through those neighborhoods. And one thing I've, I've asked people who believe this is if somebody were lying on the ground dying of a fentanyl overdose uh, and I administered naloxone, the rescue drug, I would do it without their consent. I say, would you object to that? And they say, well, God, no, you're saving a life. I'm like, that's right. Sometimes when someone can't take care of themselves, we intervene because we care about them. But they don't seem willing to take that same view when it's say somebody who's conscious, but they're standing in the middle of an intersection yelling because they're high on a drug and they're you know yelling at traffic or maybe they're not completely dressed on a cold and wintry day. And uh, and then they, they become very uh, libertarian when I say, well, what if we went out there and got that person, even though they don't want to be taken to a safe, warm place, we did it anyway. Um, then they sort of reverse back to a libertarian view of no, 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 they're, they're being who they are and you're not allowed to impose on them in any way. So for the uninitiated, um, they, they oftentimes can't believe that activists actually say that. Uh, but they do make the case, no, they should be able to go to the bathroom, in public, they should be able to you know, close, not close, uh, etc. The yelling, that's be going into traffic, all that is under their rubric of freedom. I mean, that, that sounds crazy, but they actually do think that, right? Yeah, there are there are people who who think all the things you just said, and and it's uh, it's not a conception of freedom that I I personally share because I think a certain amount of our freedom comes from uh, constraint on individual uh, uh, rights. So you know, just like we say, you know, you can't carry around a, a automatic weapons everywhere you go and settle your fights that way. That's a constraint on your freedom. But without that, you know, we can't have any community safety. And you know, there's you can go too far for sure. We we don't want to constrain people's right to speech or their right to marry who they want to or be who they are. 
Um, but at some level, when it becomes extremely harmful to others, normally, you know, we would step in and say, um, this is not okay. You can't keep doing this anymore. We can't have, you know, kids terrified to walk to school uh, through the neighborhood. We can't have uh, old older people in the neighborhood who I know who are afraid to go out past six o'clock at night. We can't have shootings on the street as different dealers, uh, you know, slug it out for territory. All those kinds of things that. To me, part of a conception of freedom in the community is we constrain those things, restrict that kind of freedom in order for all of us to share safety so we can all you know, live the lives that we want to live. No, as I see those activists and they call themselves left wing, I'm always shocked by it. You don't, and sometimes they'll even say it, oh, who cares about the community, right? I'm like, what? The whole point of the left is community. And yes, you're supposed to care about the working class mom who's trying to take her kid to school and get to work safely. She's got to work two jobs and you're being constantly accosted. What do you mean you don't care? That's insanity to say you don't care. But okay, so some, of course, a lot of people don't say that they don't care. They have other ways of phrasing it, et cetera. To be fair to them, they're not here. But but now let's talk about the alternative because they would say, I think, well, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to stuff them into some terrible addiction recovery thing that you know and then and and not allow them to get out what kind of government tyranny is this I know man they sound like right wingers but anyway what what is the solution professor Humphreys what what could we do so we could, there's a lot of things we can do because we can look at other cities that have less severe drug problems in San Francisco you know there are there are very good strategies where where health people and, and law enforcement work together to uh, close down open air drug markets, which we have quite significant one in San Francisco. This is what's done in, in Europe. This is what's done in Portugal, which is often cited as an example of what drug policy should be like. Not to eliminate drug use, there will always be drug use and there will always be drug dealing, but you don't need to have destruction of neighborhoods, inability for families to safely raise their kids or people just to hang out in the park if they want to. That's something we can all work on together. Second, with people who use a drug and then threaten public safety in some way. You know, they mug people, they break into houses, they uh, rip off catalytic converters, all those kinds of things. You can use the power of the court to say, uh, you know, we don't want to put you in jail for this, but you did commit a crime. We think your addiction is part of it. If you will accept treatment, we will monitor that closely. Um, you will not have to go to jail. And that is, yes, that is putting pressure on them. And people may seem that's unfair, but of course they're putting pressure on others by stealing and robbing and threatening and those kinds of things. And you know, we all have some, we all have rights, but we also have some responsibilities to each other. And uh, I think that's a case where we should use the power of the state and to um, you know guide people into a state of recovery. And one of the things that's interesting to me, I know many people in recovery. Obviously, I work as an addiction researcher, and many of them say they're grateful to the people who really nagged them to change their behavior. Maybe at the time they were furious at their spouse or their boss or the cops. But later, once they you know, get, get a clear head and are well on in a, in a sober life, they realize, wow, those people really saved my life. I mean, look, I wanna screw, of course. And when you're high on fentanyl, you're not helping that guy by saying, "Oh, have more freedom. No, no, that doesn't help him at all. It does the opposite. But now, when you're enforcing it, there's also the, the idea that, well, okay, if you're going to use the cops to get them to a place they don't want to be, that means you have to crack their skulls. Um, does it mean that, or is have some countries, Portugal or otherwise, found a way to do it in a humane way? 
Yeah, so I mean, as, as I said, you, you wanna have law enforcement and health work together. So when, for example, Amsterdam closed down their open air drug scene, you know, they first off they told everybody it was coming. Anyone who can voluntarily escape this situation, please do. Uh, and then they had the police arrest dealers, not users, and they had the health services arrive for the users and said, "Look, you know, your dealer's gone now, but you know, we we're we're here for you. We've got you know methadone maintenance right out of this van. We can operate. We have low threshold services. We will help you." This takes coordination, it takes trust between law enforcement and health, which is uh, at a very low ebb in San Francisco at the moment, but it is certainly possible to do that. Um, and it can be done in a compassionate way. Um, you can use, you know, the power, like the power of the court can be used to harm people. There's no question we can all see examples of that. But there's also, um, you know, judges who are very, very good at using the power of the court therapeutically. And we've seen that for years in drug courts, also in other types of courts that focus on people who have serious mental illness. Um, we have a conservator system where sometimes people in the acute phase of their psychotic uh, disorder don't want to have uh, the uh, take medication, but um, they they have to. And then, of course, once they're uh, back in their right mind, they realize it's good. It's good to be on medication. It's certainly not good to be, uh, you know, uh, tortured by uh, psychotic uh, ideas and feelings and, and actions, and, and or to live on the street. So that that's where we we need to go. We need to tend tend to rights, but also build partnerships between the police and and uh, and health, and uh, you know take on this problem in a realistic way and not in an ideological way, which is unfortunately mostly what we've done in San Francisco. So Professor Humphreys, one last thing then. Uh, is So we don't wanna stuff the, uh, people with addiction issues into prisons. Uh, um, I understand what you're saying about the threat of prison to get them to the right program, I agree with that. And plus they did actually steal and commit those crimes. Uh, and, and so that's an issue, but do we have enough Healthcare facilities to take care of those people is that funded adequately enough, et cetera? Yeah, yeah, and so that's a really good question. That's one of the things that is uh, at times a bit frustrating about San Francisco. Although we have a large amount of money, sometimes not enough of it is allocated to treatment and recovery-oriented services. So with this ideology that we're talking about, there often comes a lack of either faith that people can recover, or just the idea that trying to help people recover is an imposition. Um, and that, that that wouldn't be appropriate. Who are we to judge? You know, people who who are addicted to fentanyl. And so I think a better allocation of services, so that we were sure there were enough places for people who want to get out of this dreadful situation, rather than just being maintained in it. Um, that that's something I think the city uh, could definitely work on. And I can say, by the way, I think there are multiple people on the board of supervisors in the city and in the mayor's office who do appreciate this. But you have to move the city and the bureaucracy along with you, and that's uh, that's certainly a challenge. Yeah, the Portugal model and the Amsterdam model, I think, are excellent ideas. Uh, and no no one thinks Amsterdam bunch of right wingers. Right, right, absolutely. <laughs> right, and so uh, it is a difficult problem, but I think that uh, you've come up with uh, very good solutions. Professor Keith Humphreys from Stanford, thank you so much for joining us, really appreciate it. Thank you, really enjoyed the chat.